1: Welcome to In The Pink with me, Natalie Pinkham. Now, the intention of this podcast is to talk to a cross-section of interesting and accomplished people to hear where they've come from, where they hope to go in life, and what motivates them and what really makes them tick. Today, my guest is World Cup winner, broadcaster, father and philanthropist, Mr William John Heaton Greenwood.
2: Welcome. Hi. Heaton. Yeah, Grandma's maiden name. We've all got, uh, what's Emma Hoyle, Tom's Howard. Yeah, it goes back to the Lancastrian roots.
1: Emma and Tom being your brother and sister. Emma,
2: yes, Emma and Tom. Emma, so I'm the black sheep of the family. Mum, dad, brother, sister, all Cambridge. All highly educated, all highly intelligent. I went to Durham and get reminded Durham, all over Christmas. Durham, right? Anyway, it depends. It's all a scale, isn't it? So, oh. um, if all your family have been to Cambridge and you don't go to Cambridge, it's a very sort of... Um, yeah, I'm bottom of the pile. <laughs>
1: Uh, that is absolutely not what I uh, have come to read and know about you because your life is um, already very accomplished and you're only 45 years old, 45 years young. Yeah. Um, let's cast our minds back to that, uh, that joyous day in 1970-ish. Two. Two. In Lancashire. Yeah. And uh, your childhood growing up, what, what are your memories of it?
2: Uh, sensational. little village called Hurst Green. Um, about three-quarters of a mile from a school that my mother and father both taught at, which was Stonyhurst College, run by a Jesuit priests. Um, then in 1973, uh, Dad did his usual, got fed up with people, um, threw a sort of social hand grenade in there, jumped on a plane and we went to Italy, where Dad was going to play rugby for Rugby Roma and then Algida. And so I spent five years. We went for one, we stayed for five... I grew up in Rome, um, and it was my first language, Uh, and then we came back in 78, and then my little village was everything, so they're all my muckers, and I only ever, ever wanted to play up front for Hurst Green Football Club, and three years ago, I got my wish and wore the number nine jersey on the back pitch at Hurst Green Football Club, which was just off Smithy Row, which is where we lived uh, for 20-odd years, and... uh, It's amazing, you know, you can do all sorts of sport and all sorts of other things, but those little things in life were uh, an absolute joy. Scored from a corner, we lost 4-2, and uh, as memorable as any sporting event as I've been involved in.
1: Well, that is some achievement. Uh, That must have been fantastic growing up in Rome, and actually then going back and playing for England against Italy must have stirred up a lot of emotion and memory as well.
2: Yeah, it was slightly frustrating in 2000. I'd had a uh, bad year, injuries. And so I was actually just... It was Stadio Flaminio. Uh, they now play at the Olympic Stadium. Stadio Flaminio is where uh, Italy joined the Six Nations in 2000. It was the Five Nations. And uh, England played there away. And I was only the water boy. But that was a stadium I'd grown up in when Dad was playing for Algida. Um, and all the photos on the wall at home are him with a map way before Movember, a huge tash. <laughs> um, I remember when he came to pick me up from boarding school at Sebra in about... Uh, 89 Um, this bloke he'd, he'd always had a moustache like a walrus like Craig Stadler and uh, this bloke popped his head round the corner and the bloke didn't have a moustache so I looked looked <laughs> away and they, they, they went your dad's here I went no 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 that's not my dad my dad's got a massive tash he's properly 1970s flares old school I was like oh there's your top lip never seen that <laughs> um so uh it was disappointing not to be involved in that first one, but all my old dad's mates uh Rocco caliuri uh, Giorgio all those guys still came and just squeezed my cheek and as I was known in the mid seventies as Piccolino willino uh, little willy, um was what they used to know me by, and they were still kissing me both cheeks and squeezing the cheeks and it was it was lovely, and we go back um to every Italy-England game and we'll be there again this year, mum, dad uh, me, my missus um, my sister and brother we all head out there and it's part of the sort of biannual pilgrimage and uh, I've got uh, yeah, Rome. Rome we went for one, stayed for five and if you ask my mother if she could go back to one point in time where the Greenwoods were truly, truly happy without a care in the world, it'd be Rome between 73 and 78.
1: Oh, lovely. Well, one question that I ask all our guests on this podcast is the one song that reminds them of their childhood. It's all part of the End the Silence campaign for Hope and Homes for Children, and it's all about the music that you most associate with those happy memories. And I assume that that may be something that you used to play to yourselves in Italy.
2: Uh, No, Uh, we weren't a musical family at all. Um, but uh, if I had to go something, we had... I'm old enough to have the old eight-stack, so before tapes, and Mum liked uh, Wings. So that was the band that had... That was Paul McCartney's band. Like High Flying Birds is Noel Gallagher. Yeah. You sort of associate uh, Noel Gallagher with Oasis. Mm -hmm. You sort of associate McCartney with the Beatles, but his spin-off band... uh, was Wings, and you would know, for example, the Bond theme tune "Live and Let Die," mm-hmm. that one, and um, those would be the tunes that I grew up. But um, yeah, we weren't. We we have no. My sister sang a little bit, but music doesn't play a big role in our life until um, my until Caro appeared, my wife, who is just knows every lyric to every song. Mm-hmm. Um, that's ever ever been written and so since then music's played a much bigger my son Rocco's always singing along um, But me music was not Something I mean i go back to university 91 to 94 at Durham and there are those classic songs that come on you go Oh, yeah, I remember Rixies and Clute, those nightclub songs um, but in my Junior years uh, It was just sport just watching Devouring, anything. Channel 4 appeared in 1982-83, American Football, Choose a Team, Washington Redskins. A- absolutely anything and everything was what I did. Music... Yeah, I missed that.
1: What, what kind of kid were you? Were you confident? No, Were you outgoing? A, no, were you shy? Uh,
2: very shy. Wouldn't say boo to a goose. Um, hid, if guests came round, hid under the bed. Didn't want to meet them. Um, and then... Uh, Dad would slowly educate me in terms of um, handshakes, eye contact, um, those sorts of things that are now, when we do School of Hard Knocks, they're sort of the first things I teach people. And Any team I'm involved in now, it's all about communication. So it's sort of ironic that I'm working in in an industry with the newspaper and the TV and the radio, which is all about communication. Mm -hmm. But as a child, um, I was just... Happy with Adam Hayhurst, Paul Hayhurst, Simon Taylor, Ian Barton, Andy Olden, the Youngs on the back pitch of her screen, just booting a ball around, living in a tracksuit, Mum shouting, it's tea time, coming in, grabbing a ham and cheese sandwich, occasionally playing the ZX Spectrum, Daily Thompson. <laughs> 45 degrees, you want it for the javelin.
1: Good finger strength.
2: Oh, away we go. That was, uh, <laughs> yeah, idyllic times. And I always threaten uh, Caro that I'd, it's never going to happen. But um, if I went back to Ribble Valley in 10 years' time and lived the last 20 years in my old village... I know you're not supposed to look backwards, but they were proper happy times.
1: That's great. Well, that actually leads me on quite nicely to my next regular question, which is the advice you'd give to your younger self. Would you encourage yourself to, to be more outgoing or is that just something that has to grow naturally and organically?
2: I think I'm learning that as a, as a parent of uh, three very different children. Um, Archie, my eldest, would be very much like me and sometimes I've had to bite my tongue when he's hidden away or didn't want to meet people um, because I've got that sort of National Lampoon's Animal House with the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other and just going shout at him, tell him he's got to go and meet them. No, don't. He's got to find it in his own time. And um, I think with, with the absolute yin and yang that my wife are in terms of... Um, her emotional and pastoral care of our children and my original Victorian, Lancastrian parent- parenting style, they've sort of slowly morphed a little bit. Cara hasn't come as far as, as I've shifted, and I begin to understand that it's not about them living up to my expectations, it's about them being happy. And so um, Archie's slowly coming out of his of his shell, and it's a joy to watch, and it's been all due to sort of Cara's nurturing.
1: mm now your life it's fair to say has been something of a roller coaster you've had massive highs massive elation and also some very challenging and tragic lows and
2: um i think everyone abs- does though.
1: well I- I'm not sure that that's necessarily true. But but, but it's punk- your life has been punctuated by these key events, hasn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. the first one being back in 97 for the Lions tour, where you had a near-death experience yourself. Yeah, You were unconscious for a number of minutes and you swallowed your tongue. Yeah, Do you remember anything of that?
2: So the amazing thing about that <laughs> was when I came back, everyone was like, wow, he's so brave, he's so tough. Look at that tough guy. He's back out on the field. It's very easy to come back from something you don't remember. So no recollection of it whatsoever. Um, We played the evening game. I remember before the match warming up, mum and dad had just flown over from England. It was their first day out there. The next thing I remember is being at uh, Kings Park on the Saturday and uh, Jerry dropping the goal to win the series. There's this sort of 72-hour blank in the middle where I was clearly conscious for the vast majority of it but just hasn't uh, registered in terms of the grey cells acknowledging what was going on. Um, so coming back from that actually was was relatively easy compared to some of the shoulder issues I've had down the years and people would have knees or Achilles. They're the tough ones because you remember your shoulder pointing in the wrong direction and, and it really hurting. Those are the sorts of things that you, 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 psychologically you got to get over and, as they say, get back on the horse as quickly as possible. But the, 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 the lion's head accident... Um, is one of those things that I'm associated with and on the video, uh, the lion's video, it's uh, the words, William, William, what have you done? Mum's words, and now that sounds all very serious, but basically whenever I'm remotely drunk and do something stupid, all the lads go, William, William, what have you done?
1: (laughs) I mean, I'm sure it's perhaps a coping mechanism to to sideline it in your own mind, but the fact is you did nearly die. But if you don't remember... Yeah, but the fact is, you had to deal with it. You had to process this with your wife and mother, so that.
2: Well, Cara was watching it at home.
1: And your mum was there. She, your mum yeah, was. Yeah, mum was
2: mum was there. So she had. It's the parents that have the tough time. Me and Cara were in the very early days, and I think she was at a dinner party or out with her mates in Leicester. And he said, uh, "Will's down," and when he's always down, he's a bit of a hypochondriac. Uh, and then I spoke to him, spoke to her that night from the Bloomfontaine Hospital. It's very strange when you're an uncapped player. Um, And all this has sort of been recounted from dad uh, being alongside me um, to be in the back of the ambulance on the way to the hospital. And my dad had always said, it's it's a completely ridiculous thing to say in the modern era when you worry about HIAs and head injuries. In the old days, you had 21 days if you had a bang on the head. And no one knew anything about head injuries in those days. It was a, a niggle and a pain and you just missed rugby. They didn't understand uh, the implications of taking a really bad knock, um, how it jars the brain. And so dad had always said to me, never leave the field with concussion. Because if you admit to concussion, you miss for 21 days. Mm. So you don't want to miss any rugby. So you'd just go, no, it's, oh, my hamstring's a bit tight. Or you pretend, and two days later you go, you fine, you're fine, you're fine. And so I was in the back of the, the ambulance going to the, the hospital. Dad always says this story, says it will be the one he'll sort of take to his grave, and he doesn't know whether to laugh or cry. So I'm there, uh, just flat out on the gurney, back of the ambulance, and halfway there, I just sit up in the back of the ambulance and go, dad, dad, tell him it's my hamstring. And straight back out again. So somewhere wow. you'd learn not to go. So it's, it's uh, those, are, those are most of the stories that happened to me in that 72 hours have been retold to me. and uh, And people go, stop being so self-deprecating and go, you know, it was amazing to come back. But I promise you. If you have absolutely no idea of an, event, of an event, there is no fear factor about what it holds and what could hold in the future. So you just put your boots back on and run around again.
1: Mm. This is just as well, isn't it? Um, now, you have been with your gorgeous wife, Carol, as you've touched on, for a, a long, long time, but you actually embarked on married life under very tragic circumstances. You endured something that no parent should have to in losing your first child. Little Freddie back mm. in 2002. Yeah. Um, he, he came at 22 weeks, came premature and only lived for 45 minutes. Um, how on earth did you even begin to kind of cope with that as a couple? Uh,
2: so if you go, if you fast forward to now um, and realise in a perverse way the immense amount of good um, that has come out of it, you can begin to um, compute those sort of um, 15 years. So I'm doing the Arctic... For Mark Johnson, there's the doctor who's responsible. So the same thing was happening to Archie in the World Cup in 03, so I flew home. But Mark, I'm the Arctic forwarded we did the Kilimanjaro, uh, Caro hosts uh, the Born charity event every couple of years, and we're putting a huge amount of our time into raising funds to help research premature birth, which uh, the stats are staggering in terms of the long-term implications of the disabilities and... Uh, Problems that can arise from a baby coming out too soon. So um, you fast forward, and it's it's amazing, and, and, it, and weirdly enough, it's a, a source of great joy to us that we can use our position to help. You go back to nineteenth uh, September. Um, sort of go back a week before, and I was playing for Quinns and got a phone call. Kara was in Norfolk with her mum, and she goes, "Greens, I think I think you need to come." come down tonight and you sort of think about the great regrets and I just went "Ah, just Cara being Cara so I stayed and had a few beers it was Dave Slemon Uh, I remember so clearly so little you do remember about so many really important things and then I I went out to Dave Slemon on the Kings Road we had a few beers and I sort of woke up and thought I'm pretty sure Cara said there was a problem last night so the first bad tick in the box goes to me not realising Total naive young man. I think most men are about how dangerous labour really, truly is. The most dangerous thing you ever do in your life. Um, and so I jumped in the car, went down to King's Lynn. Car had been uh, had a procedure taken place at King's Lynn, which we still look back on now and go, oh, did that? Does that irritate things? You, I mean, you can't live in that sort of mindset, but you just... We'd look back and go, nah, man, that was a bad idea going to that hospital. We should have just got back to London. Um anyway, we go back to London and uh you sort of realise it's happening, but it doesn't sink in. Um and the amazing thing in about a twenty two week old baby is it goes back to ignorance again. I'm just expecting uh a sort of congealed mess, I didn't expect any sort of formation at 22 weeks, I was crap at biology, I got a C, I didn't listen uh, and out comes this absolutely perfect baby, it's just a little small but it's like beautifully and perfectly formed and uh, lies with Caro for about 45 minutes uh, and then sort of breathes its last breath and then you go, Crash, oh, Christ, what happens now? Um, Caro and I then had to go through the process of letting people know of leaving the hospital of um, sorting the funeral out crematorium um, and carrying the little coffin and you always remember that I always we had a crematorium just outside King's Lynn and we took very down we put, uh, planted a little crabapple tree in Granny's house in Norfolk um, which was a couple of weeks later um, and I always remember David Hartwright He's a surgeon now, really eminent hand surgeon. He's come down and wakes of strange things. Even um, now you sort of wonder that well, how anyone smiles, but actually it's really important to smile. And, um, he always tells his story about, yes, he was, he was doing his rounds, and uh, this old lady, he's called David Hartwright, he said, oh, yes, I had a wonderful man today, Mr Halfwit. Um, so out of this weird wake, uh, we always talk about Mr Halfwit, who's now one of the finest hand surgeons <laughs> on the planet. Um, you then... Head back to London and uh, clo- I mean, I think the, the, the four weddings and the funeral, I always get misquoted, but um, stop all the clocks, silence all the pianos, mm. or silence all the dogs. Uh, he was my north, my south, my east, my west. That's sort of what Freddie was to us at that time. And mm. you didn't realise or didn't think there was any way out of this, this hole. Um, and people say some enormously crass things, but you understand with time that they're actually just trying to help... Um, Actually, saying nothing is the best thing, and just being there for people to release whatever it is um, they want to release. And then um, we uh, thought, so "Right, we went again with Arch," um, and then I get the phone call during the World Cup. So, um,
1: to, just to explain to, to listeners, um, Caro had a sort of weakness, a membrane weakness, which needed a stitch, which is what Mark Johnson at the Chelsea and Westminster was able to identify, and something as simple as a stitch would be enough to prevent premature labour.
2: Yeah, so one stitch, uh, a cervical suture, would be its technical term, and the amazing thing is the amount of stitches we have, I mean I didn't have a huge amount of stitches, but enough to put cuts together on the top of eyebrows and across foreheads. and literally one stitch would uh, would suffice for those but the problem is it comes down to cost and monitoring and who's at risk who isn't at risk and um then there's a combination of drugs that can help slow down the onset of labor i've got to be very careful about how deep i go here in terms of medical stuff before i get myself on on, on in areas which i don't know enough about all i do know and this is—is is they're still using drugs uh, for for ladies who go into preterm labour that they were using um, when we won the World Cup? And they go, "Well, that's not too bad." Fourteen years ago, no, no, no—that's the wrong World Cup. Since nineteen sixty-six, they're still using the same drugs. There's been no development uh, in terms of what they can give to women who uh, way before their time suddenly want to um, bring their their baby out. Uh, so uh, Mark's, uh, Mark Johnson is is developing some new ones, we've gone to clinical trial and fingers crossed we can make some progress on that because uh, he is a saint, uh, he's an absolute miracle worker and when he says jump I say how high, um, I don't really want to go to the North Pole, he probably won't <laughs> listen to this, um, but the phone rang and when he comes up you sort of know what trip are we doing next. So I'm leading a a group of 10 to the North Pole in April. And, uh, yeah, there's no doubt in my mind that if we had not, or if Caro hadn't stumbled across Mark Johnson on the Josephine Barnes ward um, back in the early early millennium, then I wouldn't have any kids. So then everything gets put put into context. Whatever it needs to do for that fella, Caro and I will just um, jump on the horse and go,
1: and for anyone listening who wants to know more about his work, where can they find it? Has Bourne got a website they can look at? Uh,
2: yeah, so uh, in my beautiful prepared way, uh, it's B-O-R-N-E, is is the registered charity. And um, if you search for Bourne, the, the link pops up pretty clearly.
1: Brilliant, brilliant. And as you say, you alluded to it then, uh, the World Cup, you know, just a year later, here you are on top of the world, the only England rugby Men's rugby team yes. to have achieved that, um, and suddenly your world has changed yet again, and presumably for the better, and it's kind of set you on a, a totally different trajectory.
2: Yeah, so people say, "Oh, it's, you've had more wrinkles, and uh, it's just wisdom and age," or you're you're emotionally disconnecting from what it did. But weirdly enough, I, I've got I've come around to the conclusion, and uh, there's this great photo. Uh, where Johnny's about to kick the goal, or the drop goal. So the ball, his foot is about to strike the ball. And um, I genuinely have come to the view that it actually didn't matter if it went over or not. People go, what are you on about? Because life's about making memories, about making friends and about having experiences. And I think the most special thing about that was... Uh, a team that were ranked nine in the world who were labelled as chokers and no-hopers had taken total control of their own destiny with this sort of um, wonderful um, wonderfully wacky but innovative leader in terms of Clive Woodward and put ourselves in a position to be in control of your own destiny and if you're telling your kids you're talking about what's the one bit of advice you'd give to yourself if you're young or you'd give to Archie and Matilda and Rocco that so say whatever you do, take control of your own destiny and make decisions, go for it, be afraid don't don't fear failure you know, you only stop you don't get chances when you stop taking them um and all these sort of quotes you may have heard and so um it it, it was clearly amazing, but what I remember about that group were winning away in New Zealand in the summer, you know going to Ireland. We're needing a grand slam, and they had a grand slam, and winning well after losing sort of two or three in the build-up to that, uh, and Penny Hill Park, and the funny stories, and the and the chat, and the banter, and rooming with Mike Tindall, and him not telling me he had a dog, and it wasn't really a dog; it was a horse <laughs> um, that his missus had given him, uh, and I walk in, and and it's like there's a horse on my bed. <laughs> well, no, it's our dog, it's Misty, I think it was called. Said and will it eat? I don't mind. Tins, it can share our room, but will it eat my shoes? No, 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 greens. It doesn't eat my shoes. The next thing I know, it's shat my <laughs> full Oliver Sweeney shoe on my bed. That it's chewed. I'm like, he still owes me a chuffing pair of shoes. We still joke about. It. So, you know, I, I get it. And it, the MBE was amazing and Trafalgar Square and meeting the Queen. Mega, mega, mega. But. Uh, The memories are of being involved in a team wanting to do something special and different and going for it. And that's what I remember. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint
0: Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound
1: Well, oh, the lasting memory and the legacy is that you got your hands on the trophy and and that has clearly changed the course of your life but um you talked about Matilda briefly there she's your middle child um yeah. you, you she represents a whole different challenge to you with your life she was diagnosed as autistic yeah um having a spiky profile can you explain to us what that is
2: um so the main thing it, it sounds like she's being naughty she has a sort of PDA which is pathological demand avoidance so sort of the tone and the language uh, and the, the vocabulary used with her has to be very carefully constructed and, and thought about. Everything, and I'm a complete time freak and uh, square off my desk and let's go and let's be early, and has to be totally um, reformed in terms of the sentence structure and has to be, Matilda, we need to be ready to leave in about 10 minutes. Are you ready with that? Are you happy with that? So it sounds like, you're pandering to a child and, and that's one of the things so if I then use that as a sort of opening brush stroke the the, the main thing is we've learned is you, if you've met one autistic child you've met one autistic child so you can't blanket them all together and mm. treat them all in the same way it's a bell curve it's a distribution curve and what, we don't use the word normal anymore. It's neurotypical. The neurotypical live in the sort of centre of the bell curve, and without going into mathematics, that's where the vast majority of the people live. Then that tails off, and it goes out into the tails either side, and you're then you're then living in the extremities of what uh, of the distribution in terms of how you're wired. And Matilda's one of those, and one of those many children that that, that lives out there on the extremities, which is therefore not viewed. And I can use the word normal then by other kids who don't understand that. So Mm. it's very difficult for the children in and around her. Um, It has totally shaped us. There was a time, uh, certainly two years ago, where just totally at wit's end. Didn't know what to do, no relationship with my daughter. Um, She would only commute to Caro. Caro was the key to her world. And then slowly but surely through education, through Caro going to so many courses, um, spending so much time studying, speaking, asking, talking, finding information out long hours into the night that she's helped educate me which has allowed us to live and handle with Matilda but it doesn't change it doesn't go away and um, it would have involved a, a pretty rubbish half hour last night when you're just trying to get her to sit down sort of for half and half a minute never mind half an hour just to attempt a little bit of homework but gone out the window okay we leave it and it might take then two or three days for that to uh, to happen again so um, I think where we're at a stage are is I genuinely feel we've come through the darkest part of it in terms of a family Matilda will always live with it and it's us trying to facilitate as uh, a, a life for her that will be a happy one uh, I suspect that may involve staying very close to us for a very, very long period of time. But if that's what it is, then then that's what it is. And the boys have begun to understand that, Archie and Rocco. And uh, we love her with all our heart, Matilda. And we we all uh, find a way to to live together in as happy a way as possible. But it's it's really, really difficult living with an autistic child.
1: Mm. When did you sort of first realise that the pieces didn't quite fit for her in the same way... Say Archie because he, he was the only one that you could really compare her to at the time. Yeah.
2: Um, good question. I mean, how old is Matilda now? She was born in April 2006. Um she's 11 and a half when she was sort of six or seven. Mm. Um, and some and She was teach-
1: diagnosed at seven, wasn't she?
2: Yeah, some teachers at some of the schools she was involved with, you know, you sort of look back at them and go, what, really? But they didn't understand, and it's so. You know, Asperger's and autism—these sorts of words that we are beginning to view as normal—didn't enter the English language until the 30s and mm. 40s. Just didn't exist. Um, so, there's part of me that goes uh, again: if Matilda was born in the 18th century, um, she'd be in a lunatic asylum. Mm. That's just what happened. Um, you'd have just been put away and forgotten about. You, it's not meant to be. You know, you just, should it should be. She'd be the mad woman who lives at the top of the house that you just keep away from everyone uh, and um, brush under the carpet. Mm. The beauty of it now, with everyone understanding and mental health, is uh, it's it's being much more brought out into the domain, the, the open world, to discuss, to help, uh, to support. And she's at a little school called Claire's Court now, and uh, Mrs. Sheffield. Uh, and Leanne Barlow and, and the girls and the ladies there, they are proper heroes. And, you know, you sometimes get fated for sport. And I've talked about Mark Johnson, hero. Leanne Barlow, Mrs Sheffield, hero, hero. Carol Greenwood, hero. Um, he, he's, we sometimes make heroes out of the wrong people. And uh, I, I know I'm surrounded by people who have done and will do so much good for this planet
1: mm. How does her how does it sort of manifest itself? What's her behaviour patterns? Or what are there patterns? Is it all atypical?
2: Uh, well, We don't go anywhere where there's crowds um, anymore or noise um, you know I always thought it was, come on middle, let's sit at the table and she would be under the table with headphones on uh, and now it's just that she just goes into her world. She loves swimming. We couldn't work out why she loves swimming she loves spending I mean, hours and hours and hours under the water. Literally, if you go to the swimming pool um, by the steps, she'd just lower herself down and hold onto the steps and go under the water. She can hold her breath. It's extraordinary. It always reminds me of the Jean Reno film, um, where she, that, when they jump in to the water in DJ to compete how long they can spend under the water. That, if it was an Olympic sport, Matilda would be a gold medalist. Um, And we couldn't work it out what it was and it's because no one's talking to her and there's Mm. just sort of that weird noise silence at the bottom of the swimming pool and under the water um so that's um how it manifests itself uh we have less instances now but extraordinary meltdowns i think would be the 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 word that most people would associate with a, a screaming child uh, and I think in the early days it's so difficult because you just, everyone's looking at you and you're going, mm. and there's nothing you can do about it and you sort of try, you'd actually make it worse by um, come on Matilda, and then she gets stressed about it all, so now it's one of those ones where you, you you sort of smother people in there, smother people with smiles, so when she has meltdowns and people have got that judgmental look and perhaps haven't had any episodes of, of, of this sort of health problems in their own family, it's sort of more in ignorance and so you just turn and smile at them and they uh, and with that you diffuse it it doesn't matter Matilda you just play out whatever you've got to do you just play it out and how much noise you want to make however much you want to scream you scream um but you know and this sounds very strange then to say but we're lucky because she's a relatively high performing. Um, autistic child. We've managed to keep her in mainstream school, not just because we want to get her to do GCSEs, but we want to keep a, a collective group, a social group that she can attach herself to because it becomes a very lonely world for, for autistic children um, and, and that's sort of what we're trying to do, but she has a teacher's assistant, Mrs Sheffield who's with her every minute of every day at school trying to um, uh, translate what on earth the teachers are saying at the front on the board. So, um, yeah, it's 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 been another challenge. But, look, I go back to the whole point and one of the things I say to to, to all the kids I coach on School of Odd Knocks or all the kids who ask me about things that I'm involved in, a sort of teacher's assistant style myself, is two things. Don't judge a book by its cover mm. and don't look over a garden fence in life. It ain't The grass ain't ever greener mm. on the other side
1: looking forward if you can with her future do you worry about her do you worry how things are going to develop
2: yeah look i think so because i I think the classic thing in life is for for a little girl is to 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 meet a partner um and to get married um and to have a happy life surrounded by friends and family and we worry that how is that going to be possible Mm. um but um Caro and I now, we work really hard to, to to cut potential issues off at the pass, but at the same stage to try and just take every day as it comes. And the first most important text of the day, whoever's done the school doing the school run... So Caro has to get out of the house at half seven in the morning with Rocco. Rocco doesn't have to be at school till 20 past eight. But if Caro's in the house, then the extreme separation anxiety that she has with her mother means she won't go to school. So we've worked out a little routine. Rocco gets up like a little trooper that he is, gets up early, puts his school clothes on early, they get out of the house and they and they go close to the school and they read books in the car so that she's out of the house. Then uh I do the school run um as often as I can and the text to Caro she's in. I mean that's that, you know, people can what you text your wife to say your daughter's in at school, yes, that is Number one, done. Then Mrs Sheffield sends out an email at three o'clock every day. So there'll be one on my phone waiting for me now, um, which will say, she's had a good day, Um, this is what she's done, or she hasn't, and can you come in? Um, And so it's just staging posts Mm. each day, and we celebrate the good days, uh, and we know the bad days are just around the corner, but we're ready for them, and um, we don't fear them. As, as much as we did.
1: Mm. And it sounds like you've got to that point through a lot of research and, as you say, a lot of reading by, by both yourself and Caro. You, you, you mentioned No, it's Caro. It.
2: It's Caro, Caro, Caro. I mean, well, look, I, she educates me. Mm. I, I, you know, but you've been very receptive luck- to it. Yeah, I'm very lucky that uh, to, to, she's... Um, after Caro used to work uh, in fashion and then after Freddie happened and then Arch came along, it was tough, we sort of decided that Caro would, would, would be be the homemaker be the mother and she's extraordinary uh, at that and i you know you don't want to pigeonhole and i sort of go out and uh, i'm in charge of finances and you know we joke about, i'm in charge of finance she's in charge of mergers and acquisitions and homes <laughs> um but what she's done is is spectacular i mean truly truly spectacular the amount of work but she goes queens i've, I've got no choice we have no choice mm. um um, I I have to be there for Matilda. So we do realise we're extraordinarily lucky and, you know, without being vulgar about it, at times we've just we've thrown cash at it. Mm. Who can we see? How can we get there? How can we help her? And uh, you hear heartbreaking stories uh, of long queues and uh, waiting times in, in this perspective. So in amongst it all, yes, it's tough but we're very lucky to be in the situation we've sort of created for ourselves.
1: Mm. Mm. Talking of that situation that you've created yourself, you've had to reinvent yourself. How difficult was it to do that after such a successful career in rugby to actually say, hang up your boots, who am I, where do I belong and where do I start forging a new career? Because that can't be easy when actually... All you focused on until that point is is pulling on your jersey and, and doing a great job for club and country.
2: Yeah. So I, again, you go back to time of birth, 1972, which means when rugby went professional in 1996, I was already 24, which means I'd been to university, which I know isn't the be-all and end-all, but it was a, it was a good route to market in terms of the work I wanted to do. I worked for Middle and Global Markets, which was bought by HSBC. I was a foreign exchange trader, uh, had a great time in the city. I saw Rizzo, Samo, uh, Dagzi, uh, all the BTP boys, uh, which is an Italian government bond in the old days, all the bun boys from the life floor uh, a couple of weeks ago. They're still great pals of mine. Um, so I had the, that experience of the 5.30 alarm call, getting up, going to work in the city, then suddenly I had the opportunity for rugby to do it as a, as a profession, I almost didn't want to leave what I had, so me and my dad sort of came up with this plan that I'd leave uh, the city in 1996 on July the 1st and if I didn't play for England within two years I'd go back to work for HSBC so that was a challenge, to understand that uh, the finances weren't there the money wasn't there, so you got to commit wholeheartedly to it, to don't be the bloke at the end of the bar, that's what we said, don't be the bloke at the end of the bar that says I could have played pro rugby go find out, and then you'll know, and then you can go back and do what you Good at, or you can continue and be successful uh, on the rubber field. So uh, when I finished, uh, the first thought was to go back into the city, but the financial crisis was taking place and it just didn't seem like a good place to go into work. I'd started to uh, get involved in the media side and a uh, wonderful man, Martin Turner, had given me a host of opportunities um, to keep coming back to Sky and be involved in the, in the broadcast side. Uh, I'd got fed up with the news of the world, Printing what they thought I'd said but clearly hadn't said in my ghosted column. I had a massive argument with my pal Nick Keller and he says, I'm bored of this Greens. You ring me. He's my agent and, and, and great mate. Bored of this Greens, you ring me up every Monday and say um, they've they've jumbled up your words. So you've got two options. Um, either take the money and keep doing a ghosted column and ignore it. It's chip paper tomorrow. Or write your own. I went, what do you mean write your own? No one writes their own. He says, well, start writing your own. You know, you're you educated, just s- s- scribble away. So I uh, got an opportunity with The Telegraph, and it's probably something I'm as proud of in terms of my career, that ability to have written over a million words for The Telegraph. Uh, it's 50-ish articles a year. Um, I've been doing it 12 years there tends to be about 1,500 words a piece. You start doing the numbers on that, and actually, when you start a piece of 1,500 words, because I've got such verbal diarrhoea when I'm typing away, each piece tends to start at about 3,500, and I have to cut it back. So if I work out the actual amount of words I've written... It's, it, for someone who was terrified of an English essay at school, um, it's, it's great to be on the touchline for the third test this summer... Uh, with the Lions alongside my great pal Scott Quinell uh, and to be given the opportunity to be involved in the broadcasting of a Lions series in New Zealand and the School of Hard Knocks programme with Sky for the last 10 years are uh, things that I'm equally proud of in terms of a ranking system of uh, youth a- achievements, uh, university work, uh, city job, uh, rugby. Um, yeah, it's um, just try and every time I try and do something, just try and be the best that I can. I mean, people hate in, that sure. because I'm competitive, but, I, I, you know... I don't may, think the,
1: people hate competition. I don't think... I think people admire it and they yeah. probably... They don't like it when slightly, I'm playing
2: cards well, right, maybe at, not. at Christmas and
1: I'm <laughs> Cheating? No, oh no. Okay, good, no, good, no, good, no, no, good. No, no. Cheating doesn't sit well with you. I know, no. I do know that much. But but it does all sound like things, uh, you know, you have a lot of structure and you talked about being in charge of your own destiny. Do you feel also that this that writing is a, is a kind of therapy for you as well? Do you Do you feel that it's cathartic in a way?
2: Like I love... I go back to... I think one of your first questions was, you know, your childhood, what do you remember about that? Just love sport. Um, I love sport. I would watch snails race and and cheer them. Um, You know, I'm just... It's coming up to the darts. And way, 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 way... Way before Sky took it over, you know, Sid Waddell was my hero. Uh, He was at Cambridge with my old man. Um, he was an absolute ledge, uh, a total inspiration. I've failed miserably to ever try and emulate any of his words, but if Elvis walked in here now and ordered fish and chips, no-one would notice. I mean, who comes up with lines like that? (laughs) Especially when you talk about darts, you know. It's incredible how he's popularised this sort of pub sport into something quite spectacular. Um, And so the writing allows me to be an anorak, and I watch so many games of rugby it drives Caro insane but in order to fulfill one of my sort of promises to myself which then becomes a promise to other players because I've been in the situation where form has been rubbish Uh, you've been dropped you've been booted out of another club all this sort of stuff happened to me as a player Um, and I could sort of understand the articles being written about it but my mum man she read every word and took everything so personally. and You could see the worry on her face when I had an injury or wasn't selected in the first team. So I watch all those games so that when I write my pieces, and I don't want this to sound any, in any way in politically correct, it's just it's just how I've seen it. I use the mum test. So would I, when I'm writing away and I press send, and it goes to the Telegraph and then it appears in a paper on a Saturday, or I sit in the studio at Sky and... Alex Payne says, you know, how do you think he played? Um, the mum test is, would I write or would I say what I'm about to do if the mother of the player was sat next to me right now? And if the mother of the player was sat next to me right now and I would still say it, then that is the right side of the line uh, in turn. And that doesn't mean not saying things that need saying. It's by doing the research and the work and the watching and the time, You put yourself in a position to be able to explain to a mother why their son should not play for England this week, and that's a pretty punchy statement to have to make. But if you can break the game down to uh, Mrs. Smith at the moment, your lad's just dropping off his left-hand passes, which is limiting the width the team can have. You limit the team the width can have, then we become much easier to defend against, and we're not. So how his, how their son, how her son fits a role in that team um uh, and that's what the the sort of the microphone and the and i'd say the pen but you don't write any the tap of the keyboard allows me to do but is mm. something that is vitally important in terms of my style
1: it's also about being kind though isn't it i mean kindness is a pretty underestimated undervalued yeah. trait my mum always says there's no more important trait out there than kindness um you know you can, you can deliver constructive criticism, yeah. but still kind of coat it in kindness.
2: Yeah, look, I think so. Uh, although my missus calls it a shit sandwich. <laughs> um, which is, you, you're nice, you'd be really nice at the start, you'd drive the knife in, and then you'd be really nice at the end. Um, she, you know, uh, yeah, Cara puts him much better than I did. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, another regular question on the podcast is, what keeps you up at night?
2: Uh, Yeah, so, I mean, look, I think one of the questions you talk about is wonderfully structured. Uh, Actually, I was trying to, uh, sometimes it seems as though I would have an extraordinarily perfect structure, but the way that journalism works and the way that television works is I tend to be on duty at weekends when all my mates are off. Mm. Um, So, actually, uh, why do I keep so busy? Because Mondays and Tuesdays, You know, all my mates are at work and then I go to work at the weekends. um, So I have to try and fill my time. I'm a gregarious person. I don't, the the shy kid that we talked about at the top of the show, at the top of the chat was um, what I used to be. Now I need to be around people. I need things to be happening. So the reason I keep so busy is I just don't like being on my own. Mm. It freaks me out. Uh, I need to be around people. And if that means going to a CrossFit club and beasting myself with 10 others, then right, that's what it is. If that's why I'm at Maidenhead Rugby Club now and driving the lads forward, and we got promotion last year, and who knows where we might go, that's what it is. why I'm at Wellington College being a teacher's assistant uh, and teaching quadratic equations and tree diagrams. Uh, as a volunteer. 13, as a volunteer. Because uh, the time, the hours that I work mean that my mates aren't on off when i'm off therefore build time do something
1: and do you feel a pressure to earn money because you know you have talked about throwing money at the situation when there are problems and you know you're not a footballer you don't have a bottomless pit from your your... i would
2: have been a bloody good goalkeeper. So <laughs> you, you d- Listen, oh, sure Papa,
1: Papa Greenwood said, don't be the guy at the end of the bar. Yeah. I could have played for England. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You did play for England, just yeah. not perhaps in the mo- most lucrative sport. Yeah. But, I mean, do, do you worry about always being able to, to fund all the best treatment for Matilda, to the best schooling for Archie and Rocco, or, or do you just think that that will come because you are resourceful and you do always keep yourself so busy?
2: Um, I, and people say, well, it's it's easy to say these sorts of comments if you're doing OK. And, and I totally understand, and I don't want this, this sentence to be sort of misconstrued, but um, I have, um, I think, hugely changed over the past three or four years um, in terms of the person that I am. And it, the, the sort of where I think we're speaking to Cara about it within the last 24 hours. We said, you know what, if it's all went... Yeah, if it's suddenly, Skinton had no money would be all right. Uh, and I think when you first come out of the sport and the and that sort of glorious era of English rugby and achievement and success, there's a, a, a self-imposed pressure you put on yourself to keep there, keep there, keep there, and it's, it's so draining. Uh, and actually, with time, um, closing the door at night at home and seeing three happy kids and the missus is where we're at now. So uh, I think if we'd done this podcast five years ago, the answer would have been very different to the one it is now. The five years ago answer would have been, i got to get out there, the numbers have got to grow, it's got to be growth, got to be growth, got to be growth, don't go backwards. Why am I Why am I going backwards? Agent, what's going on? Why is there no work? What am I doing? What can I do? What do I need to do? Who do I need to see? Uh, where am I speaking tonight? What event am I doing? Why aren't I getting events? To He's almost ringing me, going, why aren't you ringing me anymore? I'm going, mm. well, I'm pretty happy uh, now. Um,
1: so what's changed? We joke
2: about it, and, and uh, my affair that I'm having is with Made Ned Rugby Club, you know, on a Tuesday and Thursday night. That's where I am. Mm. Um, get there early, 7 o'clock. They're my sort of next trooper of lads, um, and that's what I love doing. I have a pint and a bag of chips after training, get home... Um, uh, and so that's... I've, I've found a huge amount of fulfilment and it was a completely naive existence. And I look back on it and go, sh- very shallow existence, um, which was totally driven by, and not ashamed to say totally driven by how much can I earn? Mm. Uh, what, what can I do to genuinely uh, go and we'll be all right? Because... Um, follow your passion as Kara says follow Mm. your passion you've got to do what makes you happy and I've shifted away from doing things that I felt were right in terms of uh, um, irrational expectancies um, to doing things that genuinely put a smile on my face when uh, when we scored an 84th minute winner against Bracknell away on Saturday. <laughs> I'm telling you now, I jumped up and down more than I did when Johnny Wilkinson scored Stop that. Stop it. Because it's in the moment, it's yeah. now, and that's the part. So what makes me happy now? Who mm. um, was I uh, with? A young lad at school, and a, uh, a young girl who, who's an Italian girl at school, and, and we cracked a question yesterday. And we saw her smile. And like, I get it. I was like, that's happiness. Uh, helping someone uh, do something they couldn't do 15 minutes uh, before. And that's sort of what makes me tick, and that's now why I'm going to North Pole and that sort of thing. But I don't want people to think, um, oh, look at him, he's a sort of philanthropist do-gooder, that sort of stuff. He's come from sort of a torment, to a degree, of self-imposed pressure... Uh, and then come out the other side to realise. Um, but uh, exactly, you've you've put it way better than I have could put it. You just got to be kind. And I, I, I don't think. Uh, I would say post rugby. So I retired in '06 to '13, 2013. Could I? Was I as kind as I could have been? No chance. No
1: chance. In what way?
2: Selfish. Um, Expected the world to owe me a favour. Do you know who I am? Uh, Not in a huge way, but in a private, personal way that could make me angry about things that I shouldn't have been angry about. Um, And garden fence looking, and what's he doing? Why's he got that? Why's she doing that? I should be having that. That's what I should be having. Actually, um, changing that whole round to... Awesome, so pleased for you. Can I help? What can we do? Uh, and that attitude I've found has been um, just totally refreshing um, from this sort of angry, miserable northerner that I was. Uh, and I didn't understand now why people are oh, so angry, Greasy, such a miserable sod. And people would see you on television and it would be that sort of jazz hands yeah, look, like he's fun. And then you go, right? right. Who can I be angry with? I'm like, who can I pick a fight with? Uh, And and now uh, I like to think I'm a much better person. But um, it's you know, people have to judge me how they find me.
1: Do you feel that there's been a catalyst for that change? Was there one kind of? I think a
2: combination. I think a combination of things. uh, I mean, certainly, um, what we've been through with Matilda has put a totally different. Set of contact lenses into my eyes. I see the world through a completely different light now. So f- less judgmental uh, about things. I think School of Hard Knocks uh, would have opened my eyes to extreme poverty uh, in the United Kingdom. When we did it in Glasgow, the average age of death in the area we did it in is forty-nine. Mm. That's like Glasgow. You're thinking, are we in the third world here? No. It's, yeah. And when you say what well, you're making numbers up, I, I, that's The Economist tells me those stats. Um, so, um, School of Hard Knocks, Matilda, I would say I've been involved in a variety of sorts of um, incidents that are ultimately forgettable in terms of content, in terms of discussing it out loud, but personally felt as though uh, you come through them and then just put a different look back on it and go, could have done that so differently. How? By smiling. By smothering people with kindness and uh, having a far more, not cutthroat attitude towards it, but are these people bringing happiness and emotional well-being into my family's life? No. Number Erased, and uh, it goes back to the wisdom, the extraordinary wisdom in a way of Clive Woodward. He gave us a book, and it, terrible. It's on my shelf at home, and it. I, I can't remember what the exact name of the book is, but it was written by an Australian dentist who climbed to the top of the Sydney Harbour Bridge and was going to jump off, and decided, I'm not going to jump. And he walked back down, and he deleted everyone from his contact book because it wasn't it was far long enough ago that it wasn't digital. He deleted everyone from his contact book. Deleted every client that he had that remotely brought one. I we call them bringers of doom. The the character in uh, Lord of the Rings was called Legolas, the Doom Whisperer whispering nasty things into the king's ear. Just constantly bringing energy sappers. And this uh, dentist just deleted everyone that brought misery into his life and started again. And he's now the most successful dentist on the planet and sold eight squillion books. And you thought at the time, what's Woody on about here? It's actually about surrounding yourself with people in whatever walk of life you work in, with people who bring happiness and energy energy and enthusiasm. And When I coach or when I teach or when I'm involved in any organisation, I go, just bring a smile, bring a bag full of energy and enthusiasm, and you know what? Wherever that takes us, we'll do all right.
1: Do you think that that's an inevitable journey that people go on that's perhaps been expedited by Matilda situation by School of Hard Knocks for you? Because it's interesting, we were talking to Daniel Ricardo on this podcast and he said pretty much the same thing, that it was a maturity thing for him that he grew into, that he realised he had to surround himself by life's radiators, not life's drains. Yeah. And that changes everything. But some people don't, well, aren't lucky enough to get to that point early enough in their life. They might only realise it when they're 80-odd. What advice would you What's... give to people? I mean, you know, the School of Hard Knocks, you don't always end with a successful happy ending, but that's the reality of life. How do you cope with that and what advice do you give those people? Well,
2: it sort of goes back to some of the strange uh, things that were were sort of said to us when Freddie passed away. And the vast majority of the strange things that were said to us were sort of almost said by peers or or people younger or just a fraction older. Nothing daft. I mean, it is just... I don't know many nasty 70-year-olds. It's just when you get there. I think we all eventually begin to understand that if we want to make life a struggle, if you want to be awkward and miserable, then you can be. But we all eventually realise that, it's actually a real effort being miserable. (laughs) It's a real tough being as scrumpy as I was for that length. You know what, (sighs) just...
1: breathe (laughs) my husband is so grumpy in the mornings and I say we're not going to get that hour back can't you yeah. just wake up with a smile on oh, your face? Tell it's a him, new day.
2: Tell him he's a member of Greens' Club <laughs> and one day he can sit with me and we can look at the ducks on the pond and smile.
1: <laughs> oh, it's lovely. And what about School of Hard Knocks? Because anyone who's been living under a rock may may not know what it's about, but I genuinely feel it's some of the best television I have ever watched. To see the journey that these guys go on, you know, some you pull them... Up, from the brink of suicide. Yep. A lot of guys really don't feel like they've got anywhere to go in life. And it is the the most incredible example of sport as a vehicle for social change. Yep. You know, the real power of sport, something that you're clearly so passionate about because it pulls in your philanthropic tendencies with your passion for sport and, you, and real lives. You know, these are guys that feel all is lost until they get on that rugby pitch and, and they find a sense of purpose and a sense of... Being and they've got a sense of entitlement and a right Mm. to be where they are.
2: Well, that's changed as well over time. Because when that first happened, that goes back to the original naivety of where I was at the time. Can you turn a bunch of unemployed lads into into a rugby team? The words uh, unemployed, underprivileged, didn't sort of uh, didn't compute, didn't tick any box. It was here's a bunch of lads. I'm going to turn into rugby team. Why aren't they working hard? Uh, Why are they being lazy? What do you mean they haven't got a job? Uh, Just almost like I'd lived in this bubble mm. and not realising um, how life could turn out for you if you make some uh, some choices at a young age and find yourself in situations that you shouldn't have done and with it the criminal record comes, the homelessness comes, the lack of support comes uh, and this is all, a lot of this is down to things you've made when you didn't have the understanding of what the right things to do were. Um, so that's changed from that's how we started to where I learned about not judging a book by its cover. Because we get some lads, and you just think, oh my God, if I met him in a if I'm, if he was walking down the street today, I'd cross the road to avoid him. And then actually, you peel it back away, and it's bravado and it's front. And what's, what's the story? Why is he like he is? And then with that, how can we help? And so that's uh, evolved certainly over nine or 10 years. Um, to a place where we know we're not changing hundreds of thousands of lives. We might only change 10 to 12 lads' lives um, each year, but we really get to know them, uh, and uh, it makes huge differences um, to life. And it, it, it's, it's a programme Scott and I absolutely love, and we come at it from a very different angle uh, initially. Scotty sees the good in absolutely everyone. I am go back a bit when we were filming this, and the slightly more cynical northern, what's he after he's playing the system, he's making mugs of us. And we then tend to meet much closer to where Scott was. Uh, And, yeah, it's great. I mean, the the shame is, uh, will it ever happen again? Don't know. Um, One of the lads on the last one got himself into real problems. Mm. Uh, And so the programme was delayed in terms of going to air. Um, But uh, it's another source of great pride that if, if another one doesn't happen... Uh, I can look back and I'm speaking at an event for Wilmot Dixon back in of January and uh, they said, uh, we've got a lad running a, a £20 million project. I think he knows you. Uh, he knows you from Croydon. I went, Croydon? I don't know Croydon. I know Croydon from School of Art Knox, but surely a kid who... Yeah, Mikey. What? what Mikey? Mikey Elrington. I think his surname was Elrington. I just know him as Skinny Mikey. Uh, and he was an unemployed lad, and he's now building a, a, a £20 million uh, construction project, uh, building a sports facility, and I'm going to be on stage with Mikey. Uh, and they went, Will, do you want to do your... Well, Mikey's got a couple of minutes uh, to speak at the start, and then you've got 40. I went, no, 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 you've got hmm. that completely wrong. I'm going to do two, and then I'm going to talk to Mikey, and he's going to do 40, because I ain't the story here. Um Mikey's a story about what he's done, how hard he's worked and where he's got himself to. Um and and that's uh that's something that um just rocking up outside a job centre with a smile and a bag full of enthusiasm mm. can take you.
1: I, I guess the problem is though when when it doesn't go according to plan. I mean, how frustrating is it for you? Because you can only be a facilitator. You can only take them so far. They've got to have a a lot of willpower and a lot of energy, uh, like Mikey clearly did, brilliantly so. Um, How much time do you kind of think about it you've invest so much of yourself you see I think I would always be worried about the guys that might slip through the net what what do you do about that after the the cameras have gone away at the end of the day can you follow up on their stories there's, is there any more that you can do for them
2: well there's some who you, you sort of feel like the disappointed uncle where I was like I' oh, blown it mm. um, but it comes back to um, giving Scott and I give everything in terms of Emotionally and and total trust And loyalty, we'll Mm. do whatever it is These lads want if they show Total commitment and I think sometimes um, It must be difficult for these young Men because they've just heard no No, no, Mm. no Then they've got this giant Welsh buffoon Who looks like Brian Blessed and a lad called Rodney Trotter says (laughs) if you work hard you can Get a job and they go yeah behave
1: Mm. They come
2: for a free lunch and then Some of them miss the opportunity because it's bang It's over in ten weeks and they've missed it um, I know that the charity school of ournarx is is doing some great stuff got some wonderful ambassadors is now um sort of non gender specific so there's the women's version in the rugby there's boxing there's all sorts it doesn't need to be rugby and and uh my plate to, to 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 all children really or whatever situation you find yourself in is um it goes just give it a go try can be dance, it can be music, community sports, community hubs. Um, there's good people waiting to help out there. And I think that living without asking for help is one of the great stubbornnesses of life that too many of us have.
1: I mean, I guess fear as well may come into it. Not just being stubborn, they might be scared to ask because mm. they don't know what the answer's going to be. Because they get be. no, they, yeah. get, no, and they no. get no,
2: and they get no, mm. and they get no. And there's so many single... Uh, it's very dangerous to get into sort of the socially the social argument about uh, which way we vote and how much taxes we pay. Uh, but uh, it's, you know, it goes back to that previous question that um, and the angry Will was like, what do you mean you're raising taxes? Don't... And now it's like... Let's... I wouldn't say I've gone left wing, but um, we need to help more. We mm. need to do more. Mm. Because there's uh, nature not nurtures. some kids who uh, you, you haven't got a chance.
1: Mm. Yeah, opportunity of birth, mm. accident of birth, you know, it counts for a lot, doesn't it? Okay, I tend to ask this question right at the beginning, yeah. but actually I'm going to ask it right at the end because it feels to me like there have been so many crossroads in your life and so many defining moments. Yeah. But is there one? Is there one phone call? Is there one person, one mentor? Just one moment where things sort of changed for you and suddenly you saw the light. It was kind of an epiphany, if you like.
2: Uh, Mum and dad would be involved. My sister's the kindest person on the planet. Uh, my brother had to put up with me. And, you know, dad played for England. I played for England. He lived in the shadow and he's an absolute legend. I sometimes took him for granted. Uh, meeting the missus in a crappy nightclub in Leicester in July 1990. There are a bucket full of those um, sliding doors moments. Um, Is there one? I don't know if there is one. Uh, If you were going to ask me uh, who are my greatest bunch of pals outside of family, where did I have the time that uh, um, moulded my character long-term, not the angry will or now will, that whole combination would be my Durham University days, 91 to 94. um, The first person... Uh, so I, I rang Benny um, on September 19th when Freddie had passed away he was living and working in Singapore uh, we went home the next night the doorbell rang uh, and Benny was at the front door you know, he just jumped on a plane and just sat in the front room and didn't say anything I just sat there um, so that crowd uh, and I know we all have stupid nicknames at university but Simo and Benny and Minty and Georgie and, and Calman Those guys, uh, because I was a very, at that age, I was was straight out of a boys' boarding school. I was a rugby player. Um, Cairo was maybe far more emotionally balanced down the years, but I was so shy. It wasn't that those were the the group of men that really defined what I was to become. So uh, was there a moment, probably the day I walked into Hatfield College on October to whatever it was in 1991?
1: Brilliant. Well, listen, if you pack as much into the next 45 as you have into the first 45 years of your life, mm. well, it's going to be uh, one heck of a uh, biography to write at the end of it all. Listen, thank you so much um, for your company, Will. It's been great to have you here. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks